You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. As Matt says, my name is Anthony, and I am really excited to continue us in our series looking at the life of Moses in Exodus. So the church that I grew up in looked a little different than the one we have here at Liberty. And I am incredibly grateful for this church, and the Lord used it in a profound way in my life, in the life of my family, but it did have its quirks, as every church tends to. And one of those quirks is that while this church had a less formal liturgy and service structure than we do here, the pastor would dismiss the congregation the exact same way every week. He would get up in front of the congregation with his cowboy boots and his truly epic mustache, he would extend his hands and he would do an impression of Charleston Heston from the 1956 film, The Ten Commandments. And he would say, go, go, and proclaim, proclaim liberty throughout the land. And these are the words that I would shuffle out of the sanctuary to every single Sunday of my childhood. And for the longest time, I remember thinking, this is so cheesy. Why is he doing this every single week? And who in the world is Charleston Heston? (laughs) But as I grew older and I began to study and understand the scriptures, I began to understand the profound truth of what my pastor was communicating. And as we look at our passage in Exodus this morning, it's the same profound truth that I want to communicate to you today. And that is this, that when the covenant people of God live according to the commands of God, they proclaim his liberty to the world. As the covenant people of God live according to the commands of God, they proclaim his liberty to the world. So now please read with me our passage in Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1, and read through chapter 20. Exodus 19 and 20. So starting in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and he consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now please skip down with me to the beginning of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Or in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your, ma- your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, 
but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, show us through your scripture this morning how good it is for us to be your people. Open our hearts and our minds to the ways that we often fail at keeping your commands and proclaiming your freedom. But let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who never fails. Amen. And so as we jump in and examine this pretty lengthy text this morning, we're going to focus on two major high points, the giving of the covenant and the giving of the commandments. The giving of the covenant and the giving of the commandments. And so first, we're going to look at the giving of the covenant. And so jumping into the first part of our text, we see that Israel enters yet another wilderness. And this really shouldn't take us by surprise, right? They've kind of been going from wilderness to wilderness on their way to the promised land. And as Matt pointed out, this wilderness was a place of both dependence and of defiance, a place where God would test the people of Israel and where they would test him, a place where Israel would begin to know and understand who God was, who this God was that rescued them from bondage and who was leading them to the promised land. And so finally, the people arrive at Sinai And they camp before this mountain, before Mount Sinai, as it kind of looms over them. And while we will likely just kind of read this and glaze over the names of this geographical detail, like I tend to glaze over the names of rivers and streams and places often when I read scripture, I do want us to focus on this one. Because it is likely that this is the same mountain that Moses first encountered God on as the burning bush. In this passage, it's referred to as Mount Zion, I'm sorry, as Mount Sinai. In that passage, it was referred to as Mount Horeb because this mountain has two separate peaks that went by different names. But most biblical scholars agree that this is the same mountain. And I'll be honest, that kind of blew my mind in studying this passage. And so remember how all the way back in Exodus 3, God appeared to Moses as this burning bush and charged him with the task of bringing this people, the Israelites, out of captivity in Egypt. And now here he is, back at the place he received that charge, leading these newly freed people of Israel, ready to meet their God. And so Moses goes straight up this mountain, ready to commune with God, to see what he would say, to see what the next bit of instructions are, to answer the now what. And I would imagine... He has a bit of a pep in his step at this moment, right? Like we can all admit, it's been a long, hard road to get to this point. A lot has happened. And so now I want us to zoom in on this conversation between Moses and God. Because what is about to happen right here in this passage is not just vitally important to this passage, but to the whole story and arc of Scripture itself. 
because this is where God establishes a covenant with the nation of Israel. God, through Moses, tells the people of Israel that if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so if God here is making this binding covenant with Israel, it's good for us to answer the question, well, what is a covenant? Because covenant is not a word that we typically use. But it was common at the time, and it would have been understood by the Israelites. Theologian Thomas Schreiner offers a really helpful and simple definition and says, A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. A chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. It wasn't something as simple as like a wink and a handshake. It wasn't that kind of agreement, ones you make in passing without much thought. But instead, it was a much more solemn agreement made between two parties where there was an actual cost associated with breaking this covenant. And most often, as we do speak of covenants, when we use that word, it's in relation to marriage. A covenant between a man and a woman who solemnly vow to love and serve one another until when? Until death. And there are consequences, really serious consequences, if one of the parties in that marriage violate these vows. Because covenants, they're big deals. And throughout Scripture, we see God making covenants with people. God is a covenant maker, and more importantly, God is a covenant keeper. But God just doesn't make covenants for fun. There's always a purpose and intention to them. And time and time again in Scripture, we see God creating covenants to bless his people and to bless the world. In Genesis 9, we see that God covenants with Noah so that he, and promises that he will never flood the earth again and never destroy it with water. In Genesis 15, we see God creating a covenant with Abraham, promising that he will father a nation who will possess the land of Canaan and that the entire world would be blessed through him. And now, in this text, we see God wearing a covenant with the nation of Israel so that they would be his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. And it was God's desire to bless the world through this nation of Israel. And that as they would live as his people, as they would obey his words, they would be a light to the nations around them of God's goodness. So these other nations would know this God and worship him as well. And we have already seen this at play as we've walked through Exodus. Again, just last week, Matt walked us through how Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, which the text really emphasized, was a Midianite. But he saw the mighty way that God had rescued Israel from the bondage of Egypt, and he himself worshipped Yahweh. And going all the way back to, back to Ben's sermon, Ben highlighted that the plagues made it clear to Egypt, to the Israelites, and to the watching world that Yahweh the God of Israel, was the one true God worthy of worship. 
And so we've seen this already happening in the Exodus narrative. God making himself known through the rescue of the nation of Israel. And now God is inviting Israel to continue this pattern through covenant. But just as God in this passage is instituting a covenant with Israel, with ancient Israel, he's instituted one with you as well. But the covenant that God now offers you is not the one instituted here by Moses on Mount Sinai. It's the one instituted by Jesus Christ on the cross. And as we look at the covenants of the Old Testament, it becomes clear that they were not intended to be ends to themselves. But instead, they looked forward and are fulfilled in the covenant that Jesus instituted, in the new covenant. They all pointed toward Christ. For while these Old Testament covenants were initiated by God, they were mediated through fallen humans, through Noah, through Abraham, and now through Moses. But this new covenant is mediated by Jesus Christ. And so as we flip over to the book of Hebrews, the author spells this out so beautifully and says, Therefore he, that he being Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant, so that all who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And I'll be honest, I was tempted for the sermon this morning uh, just to read our passage in Exodus and then flip over, read Hebrews, and just send us on our way. Because Hebrews is a much better job explaining this than I can in such beautiful detail. Um, But Hebrews was a book written to first century Jewish community after the death and resurrection of Jesus and shows with theological beauty and intricacy the glory of this new covenant instituted by the blood of Jesus and open to all who believe in him. And just as God wanted to bless the world through this covenant with Israel, and just as he did do that, he also wants to bless the world through this new covenant through his church, through the people of God. For just as God calls Israel his treasured possession, his holy nation, guess what, guys? He says the same thing about you. He says the same thing about his church. In his letter, the apostle Peter refers to the church as a holy nation, as a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the wonderful thing is that every single Sunday, as we come to this table, as we take the Lord's Supper together, we celebrate the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, and that we are all now partakers of this new covenant. And as an elder holds up a cup of wine and recites the words of Jesus each week, we are reminded that the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus, was poured out for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the forgiveness of my sins, so that we can be a part of the family of God and enjoy this eternal inheritance secured for us by Jesus. And so, friends, as we take communion this week, like we do every week, please don't just fall into rote repetition. Don't just shuffle up to the table thinking about your lunch plans, thinking about the game that's on, or focused on the stain of the person of the, on the shirt of the person in front of you. That's something I'm guilty of. 
But come to the table rejoicing that you are under this new covenant. Wash clean by the blood of Jesus and look forward to your eternity with him. And so that is covenant. Israel was a covenant people of God, and we as a church are the covenant people of God. But along with covenants come demands. And so now we're going to look at those demands, and particularly at the Ten Commandments. Because God didn't just rescue the people of Israel, take them to the land he promised, and then send them off to do whatever they wanted to do. No, of course not. He gave them commands. He gave them a way to live as his covenant people. And so going back to our text, we see that the elders of Israel gathered and eagerly agreed with God's offer of a covenant. It didn't seem like there was a long uh, deliberation process before they'd arrived at that decision. And so now the people are gathered before this mountain, and we see God descend on it. Verse 16 says that there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud of smoke and a trumpet blast as God descended on it in fire, which is a wild thing to think about. But now we see that the burning bush of God's presence in Exodus 3 has now bloomed and consumed this whole mountain. And so with all of Israel gathered, God lays out, with a voice like thunder, the foundation of his law, the Ten Commandments. Now, if you are here and you are newer to Christianity and you're trying to understand what exactly Christianity is, one, we are so glad that you are here, but also this is a great week for you to be here. Because even if you know next to nothing about the Bible, you've probably heard of these Ten Commandments. And you can probably name a few. Do not lie, do not kill, do not commit adultery. They are fairly well-known and cited widely in our culture. But whether you are newer to Christianity or whether some of your earliest memories are in some church classroom somewhere, learning all these Ten Commandments with all the accompanying hand motions, we should all know why these Ten Commandments are important. And let me just say on the outset that we are mostly going to be looking at the purpose of these Ten Commandments, not so much their content. There is so much packed into these Ten Commandments that if we took the time to walk through all of them and talked about the content here, we would be here for a very, very long time. So we're going to focus on their purpose. And so in looking at the purpose of these commandments, we are going to see that they are both a mirror and a message. A mirror and a message. First, a mirror. So imagine right now that you are a part of this nation of Israel. You have spent your entire life in captivity in Egypt. Maybe you've heard stories about this God Yahweh, the God of your forefathers, but all around you is the worship of Egyptian gods. And then here comes this Moses guy who claims to be sent from Yahweh to free you. And while at first you're probably thinking, all right, I'm just going to hang back and kind of see where this goes, you then begin to experience all this supernatural activity done by Moses in the name of Yahweh. And then you are finally free 
from Egypt through all these miraculous works. And then you journey to the mountain. And all the while, you see God providing for you. And you know you want to follow this God who's freed you from slavery, who has provided for you throughout this wilderness journey. But you really don't know him that well yet. You've heard stories about him that have been passed down. You know the promises he's made to your people. But you really aren't too sure what he expects, what he's like, who he is. And then you gather at the foot of this mountain. And you see Yahweh descend on it in fire and smoke. And with a voice like thunder, he lays out the Ten Commandments. And this is your introduction. And with the giving of these commandments, God is telling you exactly who he is, what he's like, and how to follow him. Because these commandments are a mirror. They reveal both God as the giver of the law and us as the hearer of the law. Revealing both the way that God wants us to live and the ways that we often fail to live according to it. Revealing the ways that we fail to worship him and treat each other how we should. Uh, Theologian R.C. Sproul puts this so simply and wonderfully. He says, the law of God reveals the character of God while exposing our own. And so please do not read these Ten Commandments as some archaic rule set given on some mountain a thousand miles from here and a thousand years ago. But instead, look at them intently and see the heart of God. See God telling you exactly who he is. See how deeply he desires the worship of his people. See how wicked and destructive it is to worship things other than God. See how much God hates deceit and loves truth. See how much God hates senseless killing and values the lives of those who bear his image. See that the Lord is good and experience that goodness through these Ten Commandments. And so now some of you may be asking, well, that's great for these Ten Commandments, but what about the rest that follow? Because if you remember from your Bible reading plan, or if you've got bored and you're reading ahead in the text right now, you will see that Exodus tells a riveting story of the redemption of of Israel from Egypt, this journey through the wilderness. And then right after these Ten Commandments, you are greeted with chapters upon chapters of giving very specific commands about things like buying land, selling land, how to act around a tabernacle, and the age-old question of what to do when your donkey falls in your neighbor's pit. And while that may appeal to some of you, homesteaders out there in particular, generally speaking, the rest of the rules and laws that follow these commandments can make us scratch our head a little bit. And while scholars have deliberated this issue over the centuries, what is clear is that these Ten Commandments are the foundation of all the laws and commands that follow. They encapsulate the core of God's moral character, and the laws that deal with civic life of ancient Israel and the sacrificial system were a specific outflow of God's moral law revealed in the Ten Commandments. And they were given uniquely to the nation of Israel so they could live as God's people in the land he was giving to them. 
And the New Testament reflects on these civic and these ceremonial laws, and it points out that they weren't intended to last forever. They were for ancient Israel as they lived in the land. Hebrews 10 tells us that these laws were a shadow of the good things to come and points toward Christ as the one who would fulfill the law. But just as these Ten Commandments form the foundation of how the Israelites were to know and obey and worship God, they do the same thing for us today. Because unlike the many laws and rules that follow the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments themselves are quoted, upheld, and rearticulated in the New Testament. Why? Because God has not changed. He is the same. The God of the Old Testament is the same one as the New. The God who descended on this mountain with fire and smoke is the same one present with us now, as we are the temple of God, built not by humans' hands, but built by Christ and indwelt with his spirit. And so please know these Ten Commandments. Dwell on them, meditate on them, memorize them, use the hand motions if you need to. No judgment. It does help. And use them to better understand and know God. And as we look at ourselves in the mirror of this law, we will often not really like what we see. We will be quick to see the ways that we don't measure up, the ways that we don't value the things that God values, the way we are quick to hate ourselves and others. When you hit that, and you probably will, just stare a little bit longer. And you will see the glory of the Lord and be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And so just as the law of God is a mirror, it's also a message. It's also a message. As God's people live according to his commands, we proclaim a message. We proclaim his liberty to the world. Looking back at the beginning of chapter 20, as God tells the gathered people of Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He was explicitly drawing their attention back to the promise that he made to them earlier in Exodus, that he would deliver them from slavery and that he would redeem them, that they would be free. And then right after God reminds them of this, he goes on to lay out the Ten Commandments. And immediately we have to grapple with what it means to be free. Because God here is rescuing them from slavery in Egypt only to immediately turn around and give them commands they're supposed to live according to. And this isn't just something we have to wrestle with in this text. This is something we have to wrestle with as believers, as followers of Jesus. Even us at this church, we are part of a church called Liberty, which means free people. And yet every Sunday, from the liturgy, to the songs, to the Lord's table, from the pulpit, we are asking you to live according to a certain way, a way that God expects us to live. And so what does it then mean to be free? How in the world is the message of the law, of God's commands and commandments, how is it one of freedom? So what we first have to understand is that as the scriptures speak of freedom, they are not speaking of absolute autonomy. 
Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. That is not Christian freedom. But instead, let me suggest that that is captivity. That is being controlled by desires and by sin that only seek out your destruction. And so if absolute autonomy is not freedom, then what is freedom? What what is Christian freedom? And this text helps to give us an answer. Because notice here, what is the goal of the covenant and of these commandments? It was so Israel would be God's treasured possession, his holy nation, his kingdom of priests. And so freedom isn't about individual autonomy. Freedom is about enjoying God and joining in his work of redemption. It is a freedom to live how we were designed to live, as followers and enjoyers of God, as a people who seek to be his presence and his light in the world around us. And so freedom is not autonomy. It is restoration. It is restoring the relationship between God and man that sin has destroyed, but that Christ has redeemed. That is freedom. Theologian N.T. Wright puts this so wonderfully. He says, And what we discover at the heart of Christian freedom is the love of God himself poured out in the death of Jesus simultaneously sets us totally free while imposing considerable constraints. In the gospel, God goes on smiling at us until despite our fear and grumpiness, we find ourselves smiling back. And once we learn to smile back, we are free. Yes, we are free. And so now I hope you are beginning to see how the covenant of God and the commands of God work together and that they provide a way for God to dwell and to be with his people. And where God dwells with his people, there is freedom. There is true freedom. And a people of true freedom proclaim that freedom. They proclaim liberty. And so church, let me ask, do you find yourself living as someone who was free or someone who was enslaved? Do you live seeking the presence of God? Do you delight in his commands? Or do you hide in the darkness, holding on and clenching on to desires that you think it may bring you freedom and relief, but that only drive you further and further and further into captivity? And please know that if you are here and you are in Christ, you are free from the emptiness of trying to find hope and relief and purpose in things that were never designed to offer it. But taste and see that the Lord is good and experience the freedom of Jesus. And so I want to close our time this morning by taking another look at this mountain that has kind of loomed over this whole text. This mountain that Moses ascends time and time again in our passage. He just goes up and down and up and down this thing. But notice that's because God is incredibly selective in this passage which, with who can come up and down the mountain. And notice that the general population of Israel could not go up the mountain. They couldn't even touch it lest they die. And what is apparent is that God desires to be with his people. 
He's making a covenant with them. He's giving them his commandments with the promise that if they keep them, he will bless them and dwell with them. And yet even still, even still, they were not permitted to ascend the mountain of the Lord. But please get this. Please, church, because of Jesus, you can. You can ascend the mountain of the Lord. Like Moses at the end of this text, you too can draw near to God. Again, let's look to the book of Hebrews, who is reading this exact passage and commenting on it. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. That's not the mountain you have come to. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can draw near to God? Who is free? All of those in Christ. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that is you. Because you've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, because you wear his righteousness, because you've been sealed with the spirit of God who is daily at work in you, you are free. You are free. And so now go and live according to the way that God has called you to live and proclaim that freedom to the world. Let's pray. Father, we are a people who too often live like we are enslaved when we are free. Father, let your spirit work in us to be a people who live in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. And let us proclaim that freedom with our words and our lives. And let people see that and come to know you through the freedom and liberty we proclaim. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.